to believe this actually did happen? What kind of evidence would it have taken? What kind of evidence to, to convince us, skeptical Americans? You know, this is something Tim Keller speaks about, about, about. And he asks, what kind of evidence it would take to break through your modern Western skepticism and convince you that Jesus actually rose from the dead as a fact of, of history? He says, those, those skeptical first century Jewish people must have had equally strong evidence because their worldview was just as skeptical as yours. And Paul in particular, I mean... He had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. He speaks about many eyewitnesses in verse 31. See, Paul did not believe in Christianity. Paul did not believe in Jesus. Paul believed that Jesus was a Masith, the beguiler of the people spoken of in the Old Testament, who would come and lead the people away from the true God. And, 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 and so Paul persecuted the early Christians. He sought to arrest them. He sought to imprison them. He sought to torture them. He sought to force them to renounce their faith in Jesus. He participated in at least one execution, the stoning of, of, of Stephen. He killed a Christian deacon because the man loved Jesus. How many of you have done that? He would have been far more skeptical than you were. And then something happened. Then he saw the resurrected Jesus. Jesus knocked him off his horse. Jesus turned him into utter blindness. Jesus said, I'm going to appoint you to serve me from now on. And then Jesus healed him and changed his heart. For, for him, he's, it, it wasn't an issue of whether he liked Christianity. See, that's just so different from the way that we decide what we believe. In our culture, we're taught by immersion. We're, just, we're taught that the way you decide what you believe is based on what you like. And so you say, well, you know... Uh, I, I, I don't really like certain aspects of Christianity, so I don't really believe that, that Jesus raised from the dead, but I, maybe I like some aspects of Buddhism, so maybe I'll believe in Buddhism. Maybe I don't really like what any religions think, so I don't really believe any of them. And, and you listen to it, and you're like, okay, so you're saying that, that I'm asking you, do you believe Jesus raised from the dead? And you're saying, I, don't, I could never believe that because I don't like this other thing whether it's something in the Old Testament or something about the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus or some sexual ethic or something in the Bible. And, and you, know, you, you listen and you think, okay, so you're telling me what I'm hearing is that Jesus of Nazareth could not have risen from the dead because you don't like biblical sexual ethics. You would never say it that way, but that's what's going on because we're taught to assume that, that our religious belief is based on what we like. Here we're looking at a man who did not like Christianity. He did not like the Christians. He did not like Jesus. He did not like the way that the early Christians didn't really follow the Mosaic law. They didn't, weren't really strict about the food laws. They intermingled with Gentiles. They elevated the roles of women. All sorts of things that were repulsive. He hated it. And then he saw Jesus resurrected. He's like, oh. And he scratched everything and started over from there. Because he didn't come to his religious belief based on what he liked. He came to his religious belief based on what he knew to be true. And he had seen the risen Christ. And he had to change everything. He's like, I don't like it, but it's right there. I have to deal with it. Tim Keller says, we need a religion that's more than just a projection of our own desires you have a religion or a belief system that's just a projection of what you already believe or how you feel, how will that ever make you better than what you already are? It's a question of truth here. And the historical case was strong. He talks about many witnesses. 
He was one of them. These early followers of Jesus were a tightly bounded community. They shared experiences. They shared relationship. They knew that they had seen something. Many of them had seen something. They would have known if they were making it up because they were in community together at the time. And there were all of these details that they never would have made up. They never would have made up women being the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ. If they were going to make up a story in order to empower their religious group about their Savior coming from death to life, they would have made sure the first witnesses were Peter, James, and John because they were the people running the church. They would not have made it women because women were not valid as witnesses in a court of law under Roman or or Jewish law. They, They weren't elevated as an equal witness. They would have only done that and recounted it that way if it actually happened that way. They certainly wouldn't have written the Gospels in which the the, the leaders of the church are all idiots, constantly putting their feet in their their mouth and and being called Satan by Jesus, their God. You know, if they were going to make up a religion, they did a really bad job. They they wrote it down this way because, because it actually happened. It's the only way to account for it. And then this resurrected Jesus became the very central thing. It's like Paul saying, I hated this. Everything about, there's nothing about Christianity that I liked except I saw the resurrected Jesus. And his whole theology shifted. His whole belief structure, his whole life shifted. It's like N.T. Wright says, it's, it's like a small college was, was given a tremendous work of Renaissance art. You know, you, you picture, you know, I don't know, Venus de Milo or something. They're given this, and it's something that is so precious and so much more, more valuable than their entire college campus. And so slowly they start tearing down one building after another and rebuilding the entire campus centered around this amazing gift of art. That is the resurrection. It is that amazing gift of beauty and hope that becomes the very center. And these early Jewish followers of Jesus begin rethinking everything and rebuilding everything around their new hope in Jesus. They understood it sounded crazy. And yet Paul and these early followers of Jesus had compelling reasons to believe it actually happened. And they grasped its significance. Paul talks here about the forgiveness of sins. Verse 38, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. He said, he rose from the dead. 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 And now you're forgiven. He says it's a message of salvation. That's why he talks about how terribly the Jewish leadership had acted. Did you notice? It's like he's just trash-talking his Jewish leadership. Yeah, they knew he was innocent. They knew they didn't have anything against it. They killed him even though they knew he was innocent. Why is he doing that? Is he just trying to malign their reputation? He's actually not doing that. What he's trying to point out is that Jesus did not die for his own sin. He died for someone else's. He died for yours. He died for mine. He calls it in verse 26, a message of salvation. Verse 38, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Jesus had no debt of his own to pay. He was wrongly sentenced to death. And so he died instead for ours. when When a convict has served his full sentence every last day of it, And he walks out of prison. And he goes through those barred doors for the last time. He's 
gives back his orange jumpsuit. He gets his old clothes back. Uh, He passes out through the cell block and into the waiting area and then passes through those doors into sunlight and gets in a car and drives away. At that moment, he has paid his debt to society. He has paid it in full. His sins have been punished, but his debt is paid. And at that moment, there is no more debt. He is free. And that's what Jesus was doing with the resurrection. That's why Paul says, he rose from the dead. 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 And so now you're free. Because when Jesus walked out of that grave, he had paid your debt to God in full. And there was no more sentence left. And when he walked out of that grave, friends, if you were in Christ, you became a free woman. You became a free man. He paid your debt. It's like, it's like a receipt. If you go to West County Center uh, because you want to go to a, a Barnes & Noble that actually sells both books and those little things that come in that you open up with a little round disc that you can pop in if you don't have Netflix, um, and you park outside of Barnes & Noble and you go up the escalator and you go in the door and you buy your, your, your DVD, your, your Blu-ray, and, and then you go around at, at all of these um, paper things on, on, book, on, on shelves. Uh, there, it's, like a, uh, it's like something out of a Kindle, except they printed it up in paper and bound it in what's called a codex. We call them books. And you get your books and you get your, your Blu-ray and you go and you check out. And then you decide, I want to go to H&M and see if they have anything that, that's cool. And they don't. So you go to H&M, you come back, you get some food at the food court. You go back into Barnes & Noble. And of course, you know, they ask you, do you want a bag? And of course, you're, think, you're not thinking. You say no because you're trying to be environmentally conscious as a good Christian and all of that. And so, so you walk back into Barnes & Noble and you've got these books and these DVDs and you start going towards the, the door to your car and they stop you and say, no, 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 where do you think you're going? And then you pull out this piece of paper, the receipt. You say, I'm going home. And they let you go because you're free. Because the receipt says paid in full. That's the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul is so fixated on the resurrection of Jesus. Because that's the forgiveness of sins. He talks about the forgiveness. Then he talks about justification. Verse 39, everyone who believes is set free or literally justified from every sin. A justification, he says, you are not able to obtain under the law of Moses. The Greek term there is dikaio in both instances, literally in a context of talking about sin and judgment. It's, it, it's from a court setting. It means to be declared altogether righteous. So he's saying no matter what you've done, no matter how damaged you still are, If you have Jesus, he rose from the dead. You're set free. You're justified. You're already righteous in the eyes of God. So, Greg, are you telling me that you can rob a liquor store and beat people up and cheat on your taxes and and be mean to your spouse, and then you get Jesus and you're forgiven and you die and you go to heaven just like that? Yes, that's what Paul is saying. And the hesitancy that you have with that makes me more concerned about your soul than about the guy who's robbing liquor stores. Uh, we share about once a year or so the, uh, about Jeffrey Dahmer, and I'm not going to get in, into details because of children and adults both being present, and neither of you really want the details, but Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, he's called the Milwaukee Cannibal. He killed 17 victims 
He's a serial killer between 1978 and 1991. And as I was reading the account, uh, reviewing it yesterday, I was struck by the fact that what he did had utter barbarity. It was horrific what he did to his victims. And in 1991, he was caught. And he confessed everything. And he received 16 life terms for murder. And in 1991, after confessing everything he had done, he also asked for a Bible. Between 1991 and 1994, he read his Bible every day, and he met every week or so with a pastor who told him about Jesus, who told him about God's love for people who do monstrous things, God's compassion on those who are monsters inside, God's mercy and willingness to forgive because Jesus had carried the sins of the world on his back. And in May of 1994, the Milwaukee cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer was baptized into Christ in a prison whirlpool and gave his life to Jesus and asked Christ for forgiveness. Six months later, on November 28, 1994, he was murdered by a fellow inmate in the prison shower. And Jeffrey Dahmer went to be with his Savior, Jesus. And the degree to which you are uncomfortable with that salvation is the degree to which you are still holding on to your self-righteousness. How is his sin any different than yours? How is his sin against God any different than mine? Are we trusting in the blood of Jesus to be big enough to wash you clean, to make you righteous before God, to justify you. You know, it's like, it's like when you die and you go into heaven and you're put in a group and everybody's got a little group leader and you get into your group for the very first time and you look up and there across the room is your group leader and it's Jeffrey Dahmer and his eyes are getting huge and his jaw drops. He's gaping, he's pointing at you and he's saying, I never thought I'd see you here. Friends, that's the gospel. That we're that messed up and we are that loved because the salvation of Jesus is that complete. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and he's coming again. It's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. It's, it's what Rena read about earlier. It, it's it's where, where God made him who had no sin of his own, he was righteous, to be sin for us so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. It's the great exchange in which here I am all of my life, sinning in word, thought, and deed, loving God with half of my heart and half of my mind, two-thirds of my and one-third of my strength, barely loving God, always a divided heart, always divided loyalties, never purely and devoted, devoted to God, which means I'm constantly breaking the greatest commandment to love God with all of my heart, all of my soul, and all of my strength, which means I'm constantly committing the greatest sin 24-7, 365 days a year for 45 years and counting. I have a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And you have Jesus who always did what pleased the Father 24-7, loving God with all of his heart and all of his mind and all of his soul and all of his strength, never having a shadow of darkness and loving his neighbor, you and me, as himself. And Jesus has all of this righteousness and in the great exchange, 
all of your guilt and shame are transferred to Jesus and he takes them to the cross and he pays your debt in full. He serves your sentence to the very last second and then he rises from the dead because your sins, you bear them no longer. You are free. And beyond that, the righteousness of Christ, his honor, his worthiness, his perfection, his glory, everything he ever did, everything he ever was is transferred to you so that you are now pleasing in the eyes of the Father. You raised Lazarus from the dead. You always did what pleased God. He delights in you because you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are justified. Friends, that's the gospel. Whether your name is Dahmer or Johnson or Robinson or Campbell or some other name, whatever you've done, Wherever you've been, whatever you've become, the good news is that Christ, if you have him, your sins are forgiven. You bear them no more. You are worthy in the eyes of the Father. You have been justified. That's the gospel. It's all we have. Not what we do for God, but what he has done for us because he loved us. N.T. Wright tells a story about an archbishop who was hearing confessions from three hardened teenagers in his church. All three boys were trying to make a joke out of it. And so they met with the archbishop and they confessed to a long list of ridiculous and grievous sins. I started World War III. I am responsible for, for the Berlin Wall. I have done everything evil. I am a murderer. I am a butcher. They were just playing it up, thinking that the, the priest is, 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 is believing them. And it was a bad practical joke, and the priest saw right through it. And the first two boys, after their confession, they ran out of the church listening, la- laughing. But, but, then, but then the third one, he listened carefully to the third prankster, and before he got away, he told the young man, okay. You've confessed these sins. Now I want you to do something to show your repentance. I want you to walk up to the far end of the church, and I want you to look up at the picture of the crucifix and Jesus nailed to the crucifix, to the cross. I want you to look at Jesus hanging on the cross. I want you to look at his face, and I want you to say, you did all that for me, and I don't care that much. And I want you to do that three times. And so the boy went up to the front of the church. He looked up at the picture of Jesus on the cross and he said, you did all that for me and I don't care that much. He said it again. You did all that for me and I don't care that much. And as he started to say it again, looking up at Jesus Christ nailed to the cross, the young man's voice began to waver. You can imagine something stuck in his throat, that sudden flash of warmth across his forehead, the beads of sweat forming on his brow, a dizzy feeling coming over him as if he were actually somewhere else of being face to face with a reality that he had never before realized. Seeing something you've seen a thousand times, but seeing it truly for the very first time. And finally, the young man's voice cracked and he let out a moan as tears began to stream down his face. And the young man found himself breaking down in tears before the crucified Jesus. As the archbishop continued the story, he said this. He said, the reason I know that story is that I was that young man. 
See, there's something about the cross, something about Jesus dying there for us, which leapt over all the theoretical discussions, all the theology, all the possibilities of how we explain it this way or that. It grasps us. And when we're grasped by it, somehow we have a sense that it's actually grasping us. It's the love of God taking hold of us. The love of God that sent Christ to the cross. The love of God that raised him from the grave because death couldn't hold him down. The love of God that forgives you all your sins. The love of God that makes you right now worthy with a father looking upon you, bowing before him, looking up to him, and seeing the smile on your father's face as he delights in you now because he is the God who lives. Christ has died. And Christ is risen, friends. And Christ is coming again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the one sent from the Father, full of love and compassion and grace. And so we welcome you now. We consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you would preach the gospel to us, that you would bind us together as your people and grow in us the love that you have for us. We thank you. Amen.